analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Happy Monday. It is an overcast, wet day here in Kamloops, but good news, or maybe bad, depending on your viewpoint, is as the water is falling in liquid form today instead of frozen. We've got an exciting show lined up for you. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the weekend announcement, uh, plenty of money thrown at BC search and rescue teams. Uh, we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about uh, how people are abandoning landlines and if we're getting the service we need from the big three cell phone providers and BC's in endangered caribou herds with Forest Minister Doug Donaldson in a little bit. But first, we have a BC wildfire season that is fast approaching and the MLA for Caribou North has some concerns. Pleasure to join the program this morning, Coralie Oaks. Good morning, Coralie. How are you? Good morning, Shane. It's great to, to be chatting with you today. Yeah, it's good to hear your voice as well. Uh, okay, so you're no stranger to uh, what uh, what a wildfire season can do. I remember the 2017 one was particularly uh, awful for uh, communities up and down the Caribou uh, with lots of evacuations, that sort of thing. Uh, last year, the wildfire season was nonetheless ferocious, but just not as many evacuations, thankfully. Uh, you have con- some concerns. I know the province has announced some more funding, some more boots on the ground, some more enhanced services, uh, hopefully to try and prevent a third historic wildfire season. But uh, everything not up to snuff, according to you. What, what, what are you worried about as we head into this new fire season? Well, you know, my main concern is listening to the folks on the ground. And, you know, it's not just the fires that happen that are the emergency. It's the amount of work that happens after these uh, catastrophic fires that um, are incredibly concerning. As an MLA, my job has completely shifted and changed as, I guess, any MLA you know, who goes through any kind of crisis. But, you know, I, I, I look at 2017 and, and there were some incredible lessons that we learned and, and you know, our hopes were moving forward into 2018 that we would certainly see some of those lessons learned. For example, in 2017, you know, we certainly, we ran out of, you know, basic resources like pumps and hoses. And, and I can understand that because there was a shortage right across North America with the significant amount of wildfires that we, we saw, not just in British Columbia, but of course, right, you know, across uh, North America. But we head into 2018, the fire season starts, and we still don't have pumps and hoses. You know, our BC wildfire folks were having to go to industry. And I, you know, heading into another season, I just hope we've got real basic resources that um, year over year we've seen lacking, you know, on the ground. Uh, I know it's a beautiful day in Kamloops right now. And, you know, we're, we're looking at spring freshets and we're looking at, you know, what are the consequences of these significant wildfires and these, you know, the change in climate. Um, last year, we sent our Caribou Wildfire Center um, men and women down to help, uh, you know, w- with the floods down in, you know, in the Okanagan. But we didn't send them with turnout gear. And so, you know, my criticism is just to the government, talk to the folks on the front lines and make sure they just have basic resources. Uh, just out of curiosity, what is turnout gear? So that is, um, so when you have floods, you want to make sure you have proper masks and you want to have proper footwear and, you know, having wildfire um, gear does not match in a flood um, a flood example, right? Right, okay. With some different chemicals and you're dealing with, you know, often sewage and different, you know, when you're looking sure. at floods, the situation is completely different. And A, I don't know how from a worksafe perspective we actually managed to get through that. If the industry was in that particular instance, there would be, you know, significant requirements. So 
my job in, you know, I, I want to protect our, our men and women who are on the front lines who are doing an incredible job. And, and I have to tell you, the, the stories that we've heard, you know, over the last two years of, of these people putting their lives at, you know, in very precarious situations to keep our communities safe, the least we could do is make sure that they have basic resources to keep them safe. Now, uh, with that concern aired, have you talked to people on the ground or liaised with anyone so far this year to get a sense of whether some of that basic equipment is available ahead of this wildfire season, or are we still looking at a repeat of the last two years? Well, we continue to be asked those questions. My job right now is to advocate to make sure some of that money that was announced does go to the Caribou Fire Centre. It's critically important. We're one of the largest fire centres, you know, in the province of British Columbia, covering a huge mass. I look at, for example, the Quinell Zone, which is the Blackwater crew. We have four full-time staff. That's that's it for the Quinell Timber Supply Area. And, you know, I don't have to really remind people. I mean, the Quinell TSA is, what, 2.6 million cubic metres? Like, it is a significant area and a significant, you know, we provide a lot of, um, you know, taxation and resources, and you've got four people to do that job. I mean, by all estimates, in the Caribou Fire Centre, I think we have 25 full-time staff. It's just not you know, it's not good enough to to meet the incredible demands that we've seen with these you know catastrophic fire seasons. Yeah. Um, you know, when you talk to the guys on the front line, they're saying, you know, we need probably in the Caribou Fire Center, we probably need four additional initial attack teams. And what we're seeing, instead of seeing additional resources, both in in people resources as well as is you know types of capital resourcing is you're seeing a lot of people choose to retire or choose to shift gears you know i'll be asking in estimates where are we at for instant management teams which is that critical piece when you've got these mega super fires on that coordination piece i think you know years ago we had 12 instant management teams i believe in the province you know 2017 we were sitting at six and you know my thought was well are we investing in training are we investing in making sure we've got more of these you know, these critical management teams. Um, and I think we're going to find this year that we even have less than six. You may have already answered my question, but I'll ask it anyway, because I, I get the sense this year with some of the aggressive, uh, ferocious nature of the fires we've seen over the last two with climate change at all, um, that the focus this year uh, is on initial attack, is on spotting a fire, getting on it early, making sure it doesn't get to the stage where it becomes this huge monster to deal with. Uh, it sounds like you're telling me that from a, a personnel perspective uh, and perhaps even an equipment perspective that the resources aren't there to get that aspect of the job done. Is that correct? Currently it's not. And you know, when I, I get people pick up, you know, the, oh, look at, we've got night goggles and iPads. Well, I talked to the crew on the ground and who had experiences in other jurisdictions with night goggles. Well, night goggles, A, we don't fly at night. So, you know, right there, that's, you know, a challenge. And, you know, in Ontario, they, they use the night goggles and it doesn't work in smoke. And I probably don't have to remind folks, you know, across British Columbia how smoky it's been the last few years with these fires. You know, iPads, we're talking about significant areas where we just don't have any cell service. So, you know, there's, it's great to make these announcements. It's great to show these types of investments. But, you know, are you sending a guy out in a field or a lady out in a field with a, an iPad, some night goggles and a shovel, and you don't have, like, basic, you know, hoses and pumps and no people, right? So, you know, the Plateau Fire, take that, for example. I mean, it was 19 fires. It was 19 fires that merged into, you know, the largest fire in B.C.'s history. And I, I can tell you, Shane, it's, it's 
again, it's not just these mass fires and it's done. I mean, we finally are starting on the restoration side. Money just started flowing in January of this year, has to be used up for March for riparian areas. So all of our watersheds that were absolutely decimated and, you know, we're looking at protecting our aquatic life and our wildlife management plans and all these pieces. Restoration is critically important. So, you know, our folks were out on the ground trying to do really important restoration pieces on the riparian areas out in the NASCO area. But, I mean, that money didn't flow until January of this year and it has to be used up by March 31st. So it's just... And I get, you know, we have not faced these levels of um, fires, you know, in our history. Sure. This is part of what climate, you know, change is going to look like. I just think we have to, you know, we have to be more prepared. Uh, and this leads me to the next question, which is, I mean, we had the massive evacuations in 2017. We had incidents uh, in your neck of the woods last year where certain um, uh, either really tiny communities or sort of, you know, your fishing resort or, or that kind of thing kind of got isolated and cut off. And uh, there was concerns there about people not evacuating and hanging out and trying to fight the fire and save the save the stuff and save the town, that sort of thing. Um, do you feel enough is being done in, in the off-season this year to build the fire guards, the fire prevention side to safeguard communities? Because we haven't lost one currently, and knock on wood, we don't lose one this year. Yeah, well, we're certainly trying to do that work. Again, you've got four full-time staff, right? So they can only do so much work. And, you know, out of the Caribou Fire Centre for a huge area, that's 25 people. They're doing their absolute best. I mean, I've been participating with some fire smarting, you know, workshops with the folks on the ground. We're looking at a a really interesting, you know, trying to bring back fire wardens in all of our small unincorporated areas. But the reality, Shane, is when these fires happen and they are spread across British Columbia, there is a prioritization process that happens. And the reality is for folks in, you know, our our smaller communities, they're ranchers, they're, you know, um, resort owners, um, many of them have been there for generations. They just, they don't become a priority. So, you know, they're calling us, you know, pleading for help. They've been taxpayers their entire lives. And, you know, in, in many instances, I mean, these are the folks that, you know, generations ago went and, you know, fought to make sure that we have the freedoms that we appreciate today. Um, they paid taxes for generations. And the one time they asked government for some support or some help, it's just not there. And it's devastating to, you know, to have those type of phone calls that you have to take and say, well, I'm sorry, you know, they're reprioritizing and they're shifting the resources to a, a fire with, you know, uh, in another part uh, of the province. And I'll, I'll use NASCO as an example. I mean, these folks understand the importance of being, you know, of being resilient. And so, so many of them had private sprinkler systems put on either their resorts or their ranching, you know, uh, their structures. And they were, you know, they're pretty prepared in 2017. Well, when the fires broke out in the Okanagan, the private sprinkler systems were removed from folks' private structures and sent down to fight other fires. So you can understand that real strong sense of, well, like, you know, what is the government doing? What is the government doing to help protect us? And, you know, the frustration of, of the folks like the BC wildfire folks who, this is their communities. And, you know, for for so many of them, you know, not only have they grown up here, but their generational families as well. Coralie, we've run out of time, but uh, thanks for taking a few minutes of your morning to chat with us. Really appreciate it. 
Well, thanks for sharing the story, and I hope more people ask questions. <laughs> That's Caribou North, Emily. Coralie Oaks talking about her concerns ahead of this year's uh, wildfire season after two historic ones in the books in 2017 and 2018. Quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk to Kamloops Search and Rescue's Jen Staun about a pretty massive funding announcement over the weekend. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, we had a pretty big announcement over the weekend. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth announcing $18.6 million in funding for BC's 80-some-odd search and rescue crews. That's a very big deal for search and rescue. And to talk about that, we have Jen Stone from Kamloops Search and Rescue in studio. Good morning, Jen. How are you? Not too bad. Good morning, Shane. Um, so give me an idea first off. Obviously, last time I, you and I talked, the, this funding was running out. Uh, it was a fairly concerning situation. Uh, I believe the search and rescue teams were shopping for something in the neighborhood of 6 or $7 million. You got 18.6. Yay. Uh, but now what happens? How do you guys figure out where the money goes? Who gets what? What comes to Kamloops? What goes else? How does, how, what happens now? Any idea? So they announced $18.6 over three years. Yeah. And we are now looking at also having two EMBC positions funded as well that will work with BC Search and Rescue Association to decide who gets how much or which team gets how much of the funding. And they're still leaning towards the alternate support model, but that will all be hashed out once they get those committees together. If they go alternate, like most people probably don't know what that is. What would that mean if they went with that? So looking at the alternate support model basically provides funding for each team depending on how busy they are, how big they are, what their needs are specifically. So instead of just being as straightforward, there's 80 teams, let's split it by 80. It will be really dependent on what each team requires to continue providing the service that they're providing now. Okay. Uh, it doesn't just go to the teams to do whatever. I understand it goes to programs and such, but obviously a pretty huge boost. Uh, what was the mood like for you guys when the announcement came down the wire on Saturday? Uh, definitely a lot of excitement within the team. Uh, we were only a week away from not having any funding in place. It was all set to run out as of March 31st. So knowing now we've got at least three years in place and dedication from the government to continue doing funding going forward from that is a huge relief for us. Right now we spend a lot of time applying for grants and those kinds of things. So to be able to sit back and know that at least our basic operating costs as well as our training is going to be covered going right. forward is a huge relief. Yeah. And that was one of the things too, because in, in doing some reading, um, it sounds like the resources in, in and kind of dealing with grants and fundraising can really eat up sort of some of the structure of your search and rescue team and the energy it's out there using. Uh, if you have the funding there, then theoretically, and over the long-term model as well, that once we arrive at that, it should take some of that component away and you guys can focus on what you do best. Oh, exactly. Our volunteers volunteer because they want to help people. They want to be out in the field. Right helping people that are in trouble in the outdoors. So when we've got members who are sitting at a desk for hours and days on end sometimes trying to put together all of this paperwork that's required for grants, it definitely will relieve a lot of time, but also that energy that goes into that so we can focus more on helping people instead of trying to get the funding so we can work towards helping people. Any sense yet whether, because as I said, it's not just 
Uh, the funding isn't specific to, you know, okay, you get X amount or this. there's equipment, there's training, there's programs. Um, any sense yet whether any of that funding might help on the headquarters front, whether it might boost some monies there to go and, um, you know, better able to buy a plot of land or, or do whatever? No, yeah? Or? Not a huge idea right now. Okay. Uh, definitely any funding helps us work towards that. Anything that we can put aside towards a plot of land or a building or you know, anything that we need in that way is great. Uh, at the very least, we're also looking at other larger purchases that are probably going to be coming up in the near future. Our command truck is also, mm. I think, going on 10 or 11 years at least right now. <laughs> I just found the scrapbook the other day and saw some old pictures. So uh, there, there's definitely things like that that we're going to need to look at as well. So obviously the building is a huge deal to us. We do sure. need a new hall, but there is those other critical things that we're going to need in the is, near future as well. When you think of funding for what you guys need, is what kind of jumps on your priority list? Is it is it new equipment? I mean, when you think of where the money could flow and you go, okay, thank God we can finally deal with, what would that thing be? So we've been relying on grants so far to deal with any of the equipment that we need, and we're doing okay right now with that. Again, there's always going to be things that turn over and need replacement as we move on. Uh, but we're also looking at the fact that training is a really big deal. And mm. we were looking at, with the 15 million over the three years that was set to run out March 31st, we weren't sure what training was gonna look like at a provincial level going forward. So all of our specialty training was basically up in the air. So knowing now that aside from what our individual team will get, that we can also get that training that we're gonna need going forward is huge. Having the Adventure Smart program being able to continue with the funding is a big deal. Uh, we definitely noticed the difference here in Kamloops with people hearing the messaging about Adventure right. Smart. And then our critical incident stress management program as well. That's a big thing. Our members see a lot of things that the average person doesn't, and it can definitely play a toll on you. Right. So knowing that we're going to have that program in place to help support our members, even when we do see a not as happy task, is... I mean, you, you just can't compare yeah. that. That's something that is necessary, and we didn't know if that was going to continue either. What do you guys sort of want to see? I mean, it's great we've got this funding. It's more than you anticipated over the three years. What do you want to see over the long term? Like, how do you want the long-term funding to shake out? Any idea of sort of what model you want to see or how you want that to work or even when it should be? I know we've got three years now, but when that question should be answered as far as a timeline? Or? I mean, the hope would be that that can be answered within the year so we can yeah. do some long-term planning. Most groups and organizations look to do at least five-year planning heading out and right now we've only been able to do really year to year because we don't know what funding's coming so if we can at least know kind of what our next five years are going to look like that definitely helps mm. with our planning side of it and I'm sure I mean as you've noticed our numbers are going up every year as well we are seeing more tasks and that's provincially that's not just in Kamloops so while the funding is great right now it would be nice to be able to see something that recognizes the fact that this is increasing in BC and that that funding that we have right now probably isn't going to be enough in five to ten years. So something to allow for that would would be my hope for what we would see going forward. We're uh, pretty much out of time. I just want to squeeze this in. Um, winter, for the most part, sort of coming to an end. How has the winter season been for you guys search-wise? 
Uh, so far, we've been a little bit slower. Knock on word. That's <laughs> knock on wood. That's kind of one of those words that we don't try to say too often. Yeah. But uh, winter has been a little bit slower for us. But spring does tend to get a bit busier. Anyhow, uh, you see a lot of the variances in temperatures. You've got a lot of the flooding starting to happen that can trap right. people elsewhere. It gets really muddy. You can get stuck in places. So it's just being aware of where you're going so that uh, we don't need to get out there and help you. And hopefully, we can keep things a little bit slower. Yeah. And check your equipment before you go. Oh, for sure. Uh, Jen, thanks so much for taking some time. Appreciate it. Perfect. Thanks, Shane. That's Jen Stone from Camelot Search and Rescue. $18.6 million in search and rescue funding announced over the weekend uh, with an investment over the long term to figure out a long-term funding model. Good news for BC's 80-odd search and rescue squads. Quick break to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we'll talk about landline, cell phones, and cable TV. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the evolution of cell phones and uh, the decline of uh, landlines as well as cable television. Uh, what a pleasure to welcome to the program. Uh, Brent, ben Kloss is a research associate at Carleton University. Good morning, Ben. How are you? Good day, good day. I'm well. Thanks for asking, Shane. Yeah, cheers. Uh, okay, man. Uh, a lot more people these days have cell phones. This is no secret. Uh, cutting the cord uh, not only implies what's going on in the cable TV side, but also people uh, on the landline side. Took a look at some numbers. They're not exactly super current, but uh, from what I can figure from the latest StatsCan data back in 2017, about 63% of households had landline telephones. Here in British Columbia, it's about 59.3. That is a pretty significant decline over the last decade or so. I assume that two years later here in 2019 that things have continued down that trend um your thought on on the future of the landline number one yeah well there's no doubt that the uh landline is on the decline uh and is generally being replaced by uh mobile services uh i think mobile uh phones actually overtook landlines about uh six or seven years ago in terms of the amount of subscriptions in the country and i don't think there's any looking back yeah no kidding uh the crtc is launching a review of the mobile wireless market the big question we always deal with is are we getting the services uh that we should be getting especially on the price point with the big three bell mobility rogers and telus i know that the crtc is also looking at uh, uh trying to get mobile virtual network operators some access to the networks of the big three as well in order to establish themselves better on the market. Uh, so I guess question to you, if everyone's moving to cell phone, are we getting uh, the deals that we need to get from the big three wireless companies? Yeah, so there's no doubt that uh, mobile phones are becoming essential for uh, most people, you know, in their personal lives and for their businesses. But uh, if you look at where Canada stands in terms of the price of those services, there's a slew of international comparisons that all point to one conclusion, and then that's where we're paying more uh, than virtually all other comparable countries. Uh, study after study shows that Canada ranks amongst the most expensive uh, countries for wireless service, and this has been a consistent problem. Uh, now, uh, bringing more competition to the market has been uh, the main policy objective of uh, both the CRTC and the uh, higher-level federal government. That's the Ministry of Innovation, Science, and Economic Development. But things have really been slow to take hold. The main companies, Bell, Rogers, and TELUS, they've uh, they've been able to really hold on to their 90% market share, and uh, and I think that 
we're going to need some stronger measures, uh, more targeted measures, if we're going to see some real change in the future. Yeah, by every measure, we're, we're trailing behind uh, per virtually every other jurisdiction in the world on this. Is is this a political problem, Ben? Is, is the government or the CRTC um, just not doing what they're supposed to to crack the big three? I mean, why is it that those companies have such a chokehold on how much we pay? Well, you know, uh, I mean, I think it takes a lot of money to uh, build one of these wireless networks. It takes a lot of capital, uh, and the incumbent companies uh, have uh, a real sort of head start and a historical advantage in this space. So my take on it is that uh, the federal government, that's Innovation, Science, and Economic Development, uh, since about 2009 have really been pushing hard to get some more competition into the market by giving spectrum to new players. So you see Shaw out west, uh, where you are, has been... Um, purchasing spectrum and expanding their networks out east here we've got videotron in quebec and uh east link in the maritime provinces and atlantic provinces uh it's been slow to take hold and i think one of the major stumbling blocks is that you know it's one thing to give these companies spectrum and say uh say go wild start building but if the crtc which is the company that acts or the, the, the agency that actually oversees the operations of these companies if it doesn't do its part and make sure that the way these companies operate is fair and that they're not using anti-competitive practices, well, it's going to be hard for those new companies to get a toehold. Yeah, it seems ridiculous to me, but this actually happened. Uh, Innovation, Science, and Economic Development Minister Navdeep Baines actually proposed a change of course for the CRTC, saying the regulator should put the interests of Canadian consumers in competition first. That seems like a, it seems like if they weren't doing that, it's a it's it's a bit uh, I don't know crazy um, that they had to instruct them to do that. But uh, now that we've had this change of direction, do you do you anticipate the CRTC is going to be more active in in getting on the big three or no? Well, I sure hope that they are. Uh, they've been, dis- you know, sort of. It's been business as usual at the CRTC. Uh, we had a couple of years of, uh, of you know, positive consumer developments under the previous management, but this current management at CRTC now has been a lot more reluctant. So, you know, I think that's what it's going to take. Is uh, they're going to need that type of direction from, from uh, you know, their bosses in the government. And we've also got a legislative review going on. And from what I can tell, uh, you know, if we want to see some positive changes, they really need to uh, sort of restructure the mandate of the CRTC from a captured industry that's sort of balancing the interests of telco shareholders against consumers to one that really needs to champion consumers, uh, you know, goals and interests. And it's not just, I mentioned off the top, cord cutting isn't just when it comes to landlines. We're also seeing a lot of people ditching cable TV and going to streaming, a la your Netflix and, you know, all sorts of companies like Disney are now going to jump into that streaming marketplace. Uh, there's a lot of similarities between sort of the uh, the landline telephone and your sort of traditional cable. Matter of fact, I think the traditional cable sort of the rotary dial telephone of our generation. Uh, what do you see as the future there? Are we going to see a day when, when cable, is, as we know it now, is, is kaput or no? Well, uh, I mean, it, there's no doubt that the number of cable subscribers is dropping as people uh, start to use, uh, you know, internet-based services like Netflix. But uh, we also should recognize that in Canada we have this unique situation where all the telecom companies, you know, they provide your internet, they provide your mobile, and they provide your cable. And they're not happy about people jumping over to, uh, you know, competitor service that use their broadband networks. So when you get these vertically integrated companies, they're going to use every trick in the book they can to make sure that when you're paying money into uh, online services that they're getting their cut. And I think uh, having uh, rules that protect things like network neutrality in Canada, preventing these companies from leveraging that cross-ownership uh, uh, is going to be crucial to making sure that we have a range of fairly price competitive options and we don't wind up with an Internet 
service that looks like cable TV in the future. Yeah, a couple things there. I remember when Netflix came to Canada, they were so shocked by our lack of broadband as compared to the states. Uh, I remember the the, uh, the owner of the time sent a pretty strongly worded letter to the CRTC calling them out for, for the situation. Uh, again, a lot like the sort of landline cell phone headlock there, Canadians on the broadband side seem to be getting a bit screwed as well. Yeah, well, you know, it's there's been a, a really uh, sort of behind-the-scenes battles going on to make sure that people have their access to these services and that they're able to take advantage of them for their own use and not just, uh, you know, translating trans, uh, uh, their services onto, uh, you know, a cable-style Internet. You know, in 2008, we saw the big companies throttling uh, video services online, BitTorrent and stuff, to protect their cable. More recently, we've seen them uh, giving discounts to their own TV service and making other online TV services more expensive. You know, I, re- I really think it's going to take, uh, you know, a, a regulator with a spine and, uh, you know, an, an industry um, department and ministry in the government that's committed to, uh, you know, creating the conditions for a really competitive market and not just, uh, uh, you know, acceding to the, the wishes of the established companies. And last question is the other one, the other aspect that I think too is that uh, the amount of options out there. I mean, a few years ago it was Netflix and pretty much nobody else. Now YouTube's really jumped into the market and expanded what they do. Netflix has expanded what they do. As I mentioned, Disney's about to get in the streaming service. Uh, you have a whole bunch of different streaming companies that are all circulating out there. And then uh, Apple's going to do whatever Apple does, and they're teasing something fairly imminent on the sort of streaming TV side. So I, I would assume at one point the options just get so crazy that the sheer force of will from streaming will sort of dominate over everything else. Yeah, you know, uh, we, you, you know, we're going to have a, a situation where to get all the content you want, you're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to, you know, pick and choose the services you want. There's going to be uh, more companies, and uh, you know, when you get these big international giants uh, like Apple and Google and Netflix in the mix, you know, you already see Netflix raising up its prices. So, uh, you know, I think that. Uh, on the one hand, we're going to have to be careful to make sure that these companies don't just come in and replace the monopolies we know with the monopolies we don't. But on the other, if you look at the, the sort of terms that these types of services are offering, it's definitely better than the old-style cable TV, where if you want to get HBO, you got to buy every other channel. At least with this situation, you're looking at services that don't come with long-term contracts. You can sign up and cancel as you wish and uh, pick and choose. Exactly. Uh, an interesting time we live in. Ben, thanks so much for taking a few minutes. Really appreciate it. Thanks for talking uh, talking to Shane, and uh, have a good rest of your day. You as well. Uh, that's Ben Class. He's a research associate at Carleton University talking about uh, trends when it concerns landline versus cell phone and traditional cable versus a host of streaming services that are out there. Take a quick break, and on the other side, we'll talk endangered caribou with Forest Minister Doug Donaldson. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. On Friday, I had a chance to uh, get some time with Forest Minister Doug Donalds and, and ask him some questions about uh, the consultation ahead of whatever we do uh, on the plan to protect endangered mountain caribou in this province. Here is that conversation with Forest Minister Doug Donaldson. You guys uh, announced a, a, the first step in a plan to deal with uh, endangered caribou populations that are quite literally teetering on the brink as far as uh, possibly going extinct. Um, Give me an idea first off. What happens now? You, you've 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 announced what you did yesterday. Um, give me an idea over the next little while what we do now between okay, we're doing this, we're doing this, and we're doing this. Well, this is a draft uh, agreement, uh, partnership agreement, and so uh, we're sending that out now for 
uh, launching the public consultation uh, as of uh, yesterday, and we'll be uh, doing community meetings around affected communities starting April 1st, and uh, it's a historic agreement. This Something like this has uh, never been done before in Canada, and uh, the feedback we've gotten from uh, First Nations involved, and uh, I must say from local government uh, members who uh, really wanted this information out there has been uh, has been uh, good so far in that uh, at least uh, people have a clear idea of what's ahead. Now, I know some natural resource industries could possibly be impacted, so we're looking at sort of mining and forestry, probably more forestry than mining from what I can understand. Uh, give me an idea what uh, what's on the line for, for some of these industries and, and what kind of talks to date have been going on there to try and uh, figure out a solution to any damage they may incur. Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that uh, the old government ignored the need to protect caribou habitat for over a decade, and that's how we got to the position we're in today. Uh, what that meant was the uh, federal government uh, was on the brink of uh, using their authority under the Species, Species at Risk Act to unilaterally decide on uh, habitat conservation uh, in BC. And uh, we said that's, uh, that's not the way we want to go. And so we uh, really got down, put our, uh, put our rubber to the road, and, and got this draft uh, negotiated agreement. So uh, this uh, draft agreement, uh, it, it, it protects. Uh, caribou, it, it uh, leads to caribou recovery, but also uh, protects jobs. And uh, an important component of that is, is getting the feedback uh, on this engagement process in both industry and, uh, and communities. Uh, we'll be commissioning an independent economic analysis uh, that will be available for people to, uh, to look at as well. And uh, finally, the, the important uh, commitment uh, that we've made is that uh, our expectation is that the federal government must provide adequate financial compensation to mitigate the economic impacts, and we're working uh, with them to confirm those details before a final agreement is signed. One of the big uh, sort of rumor mill things that was going around in the Peace region in, in northern BC was uh, there's going to be large swaths of crown land closed off. As I understand it, um, some of the measures here to sort of perhaps head that off or prevent that from happening. But give me an idea, is that is that something still on the table? Is it a possibility or that is simply off the table? Where, where are we at on that front to address those those rumors? Well, again, uh, because of the lack of action by the previous government, the old government on this, uh, we were faced with that possibility because uh, the federal government could only consider habitat uh, conservation uh, factors and not social or economic factors. Uh, by being active on this file, we've been able to bring social and economic factors into play. And so that means things like, uh, I, I guess, uh, what you'd say on the social uh, side, uh, the ability to... Uh, for people to use the areas for backcountry recreation and snowmobiling. There's no uh, sledding closures, uh, but uh, sledding management will be part of the uh, discussions that will be uh, this public engagement process will undertake. So we'll be meeting with uh, people who enjoy that as their activity. And on the economic side, there, there will be uh, areas that will be impacted in, in forestry uh, primarily and, and potentially in mining. And that's why uh, we're uh, really holding the federal government's feet to the fire as far as adequate uh, financial compensation. Some of uh, the hunting groups and others have suggested that uh, perhaps part of the problem or part of the uh, way to tackle this is to call uh, predators, wolves and such things that, that prey on these herds. Uh, does this plan or does, does the consultation or what we have right now um, look at that aspect of it, a factor in it all, or, or no? 
Definitely. We've been uh, undertaking that work uh, through my ministry uh, since uh, we became government, and especially in, co- in, uh, in cooperation and partnership with the Soto and West Moberly First Nations in the peace area with the central herds where uh, there's a whole host of factors we're using, not just habitat restoration, but things like maternal penning and predator management with wolves, and uh, the First Nations there are actively involved in that. Uh, the other thing, Doug, uh, lots of consultation now, but uh, there was a number of consultation meetings uh, throughout northern BC that were all, uh, as I understand it, cancelled at the last minute. Uh, can you address why we weren't talking to all these groups beforehand? Uh, the BC Liberals, of course, are saying, hey, listen, the fix is in, this isn't a consultation, this is a decision made. Well, these were uh, really complex uh, historic uh, negotiations between the West Moberly, the Soto, the federal government and ourselves, and uh, we were uh, trying to avoid the situation that the previous government, the old government, put us into of uh, having a unilateral decision by the federal government on what happens on uh, B.C. land. So uh, it's complex and it took time and uh, we didn't have a draft to present to the public until last uh, last couple of days. And so we wanted to make sure we took the time to get it right, to make sure that B.C.'s interests, both economically, socially, and for conservation purposes were uh, all accounted for in this draft document. So uh, now we have something to look at. There's uh, transparency. There's uh, nothing has been done behind closed doors. It was a matter of negotiations to get to this point, so we had something accurate and uh, meaningful to present. Why schedule those meetings prior to then cancel them then? Why not just say, listen, we're going to do this thing on this date when we have this information? Well, we had a situation as negotiations... uh, unfold that, uh, and if anybody who's been involved in negotiations will know, uh, you get to a certain point where you think you have a ability to present information in a, in a draft document and then uh, other issues arise at the table and have to be uh, resolved and, and, and found a resolution to before you can bring that information out in a more uh, fulsome manner. So that's uh, what happened leading up to this. But now we have this document in front of us and uh, I'm really happy, I'm satisfied that people will actually have the information they need to, to give valuable input. All right. Uh, when will we hear from you next as far as, uh, okay, we're, we've heard the consultation and here's what we're doing. When, when are you going to come back to us with that? We have uh, about five weeks to undertake this uh, fulsome engagement process with uh, many community meetings and online representation and uh, stakeholder meetings. And so uh, in about five weeks, we'll have uh, the results of that input. And uh, we're committed to uh, uh, creating a public report, a public document uh, that summarizes the input that we received uh, uh, that will impact uh, this draft agreement. And last question, Doug, obviously the goal of this is to recover endangered caribou. Herds, um, in your mind, can, can that be a mission that's still accomplished? I mean, much like some of the salmon steelhead here locally, uh, some of the caribou are very much teetering on the brink. Is it too late or is there still hope that we can bring these real these populations back from the edge? Well, that's the whole point of this draft agreement. That's why it took so long to get to, uh, to being able to uh, release it yesterday. Uh, we're convinced through the work that we've done that uh, we're taking care of both the caribou and also uh, the local economies. And so I'm uh, confident that this will uh, be a big step towards caribou recovery. And, uh, you know, the, 
the biggest impact that's happened so far on the declining herds has been with First Nations who have a constitutional uh, right to uh, hunt and they've to hunt caribou and uh, the West Moberly and Soto have uh, suspended that since the 1970s. So they've borne the brunt of, uh, of the caribou decline and uh, this, this agreement, they're full, uh, full-heartedly behind it and uh, I, I believe it'll lead to the recovery of the herds in BC. Perfect. Hey, Doug, thanks for taking some time. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Shane. And that's it for today's edition of the Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Chuswap from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.